Turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 4. If you don't have your Bible with you, uh, we have the text printed on page 10 of your worship guide. Uh, It's kind of a long text. We are are in, uh, this is the second sermon in a series on the book of Judges. Uh, If you are visiting with us, uh, I just want to say welcome to you. My name is Ashley. I'm the pastor here. We have you have picked an interesting time, <laughs> an interesting sermon series to jump into. Uh, and just maybe one note to our children's ministry team in the children's bulletins, perhaps the little section that says color what the sermon is about might want to be suspended while we're in the book of Judges. I don't know. Um, either that or put extra red crayons in the packs there. I don't know. Um, but Judges chapter 4. I'll jump right in uh, and read the story of Deborah and Barak. We'll read, the, we'll read the, whole, the whole chapter this morning. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord said to them, and the Lord, rather, the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Cicero, Sisera, who lived in Hashereth Hagoyim, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, And said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking ten thousand from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun? And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now, Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zenananiam, which is near Kedesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called, up, called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Hashereth Hagoyim to the river of Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, up. For this is the day the Lord this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with ten thousand men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Hashereth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, 
For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So we went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that was quite a story. (laughs) And we've been, one of the things that we've been saying about the book of Judges as we go through it is that they are quite the stories. They are the tales. They are the these great yarns spun spun about God's salvific work among his people, but they're not just stories, right? We know that this is also true and it happened. And so one of the things that I'm enjoying doing is reading these things to you and reading this part of God's word and, and explaining and hopefully exploring what it means together. But there's a story that goes around about Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, that one of my commentators that I've been reading, Dale Ralph Davis, says and tells about when Theodore Roosevelt was a student at Harvard. He used to love to teach Sunday school, and he taught Sunday school quite faithfully for, for, for a long time. And one day, one Sunday, a boy comes into his Sunday school class, and this boy had quite obviously been in a fight. He had a black eye and his clothing was all ruffled and rumpled and, you know, been in a fight on a Sunday, no less, right? And so he admitted that uh, he had been in a fight and that he had slugged another kid, another boy. And the reason that he slugged this other kid, and it's Teddy Roosevelt, so I feel like I have to say the word slugged. Um, it just <laughs> fits. But the reason he, he slugged this other kid is that this other boy pinched his little sister, and was, was messing with his little sister. And so Teddy Roosevelt, being the good Sunday school teacher that he was, gave this boy a dollar um, <laughs> and told him that he had done the absolute right thing. And when the, uh, the Sunday school boss or superintendent or however that church ran it found out about it, he fired Teddy Roosevelt from being a Sunday school teacher. But, but we kind of have this we have this misguided sort of cultural notion that religion, theology, Christianity especially should be nice and it should be gentle. It should, should always be gentle and always be nice. But, but how is God depicted in the Bible oftentimes? 
He's often depicted in the Bible as a warrior, as someone who fights for his people. And there's this, there's even a whole category of Psalms uh, in the Bible that are dedicated to, to God's people pleading with God to, to go and destroy his enemies, right? Jesus was confrontational. Jesus openly despised the powers of his day. But it's, it's we, often, who are the lukewarm ones. It's we who are, are lukewarm and we try to play nice with our sin. And we try and justify and rationalize. We try to twist and ignore the scriptures that, that, that make room for our sinning. And, and we have a whole list as Christians of sins that are acceptable. Uh, sins like lust and slander and gossip and materialism and greed and favoritism. And that, I mean, that list goes on and on. Sin is, is never really new or as original as temptation makes it seem like it is in our heart. But we have a God who is inexhaustible in his creativity and limitless in his sovereignty as he rescues his people. And here in the book of Judges, God does it again. (laughs) He rescues his people again. The covenant God of Israel supplies salvation. We've seen that over and over and over again. And in this story especially, he rightly receives the glory. The covenant God of Israel supplies the salvation and he rightly receives the glory. So let's, let's, look, at, let's look at this. God supplies the faith. God supplies the victory. And God receives the glory. So those are our three points this morning. God supplies the faith. God supplies the victory. And God receives the glory. Let's look at how God supplies the faith in this story Verse one, I mean, this, you you should be kind of, you you should know that this is coming now when we start these, these, these stories about the judges. Verse one, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And so the cycle is continued. And, and if you're joining us for the first time, it's when we were talking about judges being sort of cyclical in nature, but each cycle sort of ending a little bit lower than the first one, than the one previous to it. So it's not really so much a cycle as it is a spiral downward, uh, as we see in the, in the book. But, but here it is. The people of Israel again did what was, was evil in the sight of the Lord. And this, this refrain, what was evil in sight of the Lord, means in the book of Judges they worshipped idols. They worshipped the idols of the lands of the people that are around them. And so as a result of this, the Lord sells the people of Israel into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan, and his enforcer, this guy named Sisera. And we're told quite frequently in the passage that Sisera rolls over Israel quite easily because he has 900 chariots of iron, 900 massive deadly battle wagons. Uh, And it says in verse 3 that he oppressed Israel cruelly for 20 years. And so there's the cycle. The people of Israel again do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord sends judgment upon them as a result of their idol worship and they are oppressed 
for a period of time. And so the cycle is beginning again. The judge in this story, and we talked about how judges has a pattern, but so far in the two, the, the, the three judges that we've looked at, we, we've, we've looked at three, Othniel, who was sort of the pattern setter, and then we looked at Ehud, and Ehud broke that pattern in several ways. Well, Deborah here breaks the pattern of the judges again because she is the judge. Uh, she's a prophetess and a judge. And it's, we're told that, that she holds court under this certain palm tree in the land. And, and there she, people come to her to decide cases and legal matters and civil matters. And, and she judges between the two parties or parties in deciding what it is that they should do. But she's a leader. She's a leader of her people. Uh, as a prophetess, she delivers God's word to his people. And we see her doing that when we meet her in verse 4 through 7. And that's where the story is unique. Uh, because not only is Deborah a woman but she, and the judge, but she's also, as the judge, not the one who goes out to actually do the battle with God's enemies. And so the, the mold is kind of broken there. But she calls on Barak, the son of Abinoam, and does the thing that prophets do, which is deliver God's word to his people. And she says to Barak, get the army together and go out to Mount Tabor and the Lord will give you this victory. And Barak, he doesn't really seem all that sure about what it is that he's to do and what it is that is to happen and if he wants to go and do it. And Barak says in verse 8, if you will go with me, I will go. (laughs) But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now, you can go a couple of ways with this. You can be, you can be really hard on Barak uh, or you could go really easy on Barak. And before we get too hard on him, understand that what he was up against was an overwhelming military defeat. It was guaranteed from a human military science perspective, if he takes 10,000 foot soldiers out against 900 chariots of iron, plus all the other soldiers that Cicero was able to gather together, like he was going to be destroyed in a matter of minutes. It would be a no contest victory or defeat for him. But like, notice the grace in verse nine. What does she say? I will surely go with you. <laughs> she goes with him. Like, God provides the means to strengthen Barak's faith so that he is able to go out and obey. In, in high school, uh, I'm, I'm not very good at math. <laughs> so I was, in, I was in a math class with, where the teacher, his name was Mr. Chu, and he, he didn't, we didn't do, let's just say we didn't do math um, in math class. And he would spend all class like tracing these weird cartoon images from the overhead projector and it was kind of strange, but he, he never taught us any math and, and tests were a joke. Homework was a joke. Like if you showed up and you didn't bother him, you got an A. It was heaven, right? <laughs> it was wonderful. 
But one day, one day, Mr. Chu hustles into the classroom and he quickly kind of replaces the thing that he was doing on the overhead projector and to our great horror and surprise, puts math problems on the, the board and starts to actually try to teach us math. Um, and we were all aghast and, and within a few seconds of this happening, who do you think walked through the door? The principal, <laughs> Mr. Owen the walk through the door, and Mr. Chu had seen Mr. Owen headed his way. You want to take the temperature of your faith in Jesus? Ask, how dependent is my faith on outside pressures? On, on Christian leaders, on influencers, on the surroundings and the people that are around me, on, on the expectations of other Christians if your faith in Jesus is dependent solely on these pressures and it's kind of non-existent when these pressures aren't around, there might be a problem there. We all, we all need accountability. We all need encouragement. We all need this sort of iron sharpening iron effect that the Bible talks about community gives us. And that's, that's why relationships within the church are so important. And that's why your physical presence with the people of God is so important. But what happens to your faith when the Ehuds and the Debras aren't present? What happens to your, to your Christianity students when your parents aren't around? Are you convinced of your need for Jesus? Like understanding all of those dynamics and how they interact with our heart. Let's ask another question or let's point out another great truth and the grace because God knows our weakness in that area. He knows that without those outside pressures, our faith can crumble and be weak and, and we need help in that area. Consider this. God accommodates Barak with his grace. God understands this about Barak. He understands this about his people. He understands that after Ehud died, the people again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. God, God knows us. He knew the Israelites. He knows Barak. He knows us. He knows that that is our tendency when those outside pressures sort of are not present. Yet God accommodates Barak's weak faith with his grace. Deborah goes anyway. And Barak, what does he do? He leads the suicide charge down the slopes of Mount Tabor. And Deborah says, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. They were following him. He was in front. (laughs) This man who didn't want to go, God accommodated his weak faith by sending basically his presence with him. Does not the Lord go before you? Yes, the Lord goes before Barak. Yes, the Lord goes before us. By grace, the covenant God of Israel does not abandon his people or his instruments or or the, the, the means of salvation that he is employing. God's grace 
provided the faith that Barak needed to do this. And the faith that Barak needed and demonstrated because of the grace of God and his presence abiding with him and going with him was obedient. Barak listened and he obeyed. The faith that God's grace gave to Barak was courageous. He led the charge from the front. The faith that God's grace gave to Barak was humble. Barak leads knowing that the victory and glory will go to another. Verse 9, nevertheless, Deborah says, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. God abides with his people. God gives us faith not only to believe and be justified and saved by grace alone, but God gives us the ongoing faith as his people that we need to walk with him and to walk faithfully with him, to to be obedient to what his word says, to be courageous and to, to share and to demonstrate the mercy that he has shown to us, to be humble as we recognize our dependence, as we recognize our need, as we recognize our sin and the beauty of the Savior which saves us. So God supplies the faith and then God supplies the victory. From the beginning, this was going to be God's victory. Yahweh will do the saving. The covenant God of Israel will do the saving. Verse six to seven, the Lord has commanded you, go. Uh, He says, I will draw out Sisera. I will give him into your hand. Verse nine, the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Verse 14, the Lord has given and the Lord has gone out before you. Verse 15 says, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. I almost read past that last little detail. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away. What did we hear about over and over again as we read this passage that Sisera had that was gonna, that was gonna mean certain defeat for the Israel, people of Israel? His chariots. Where was Sisera's hope? His chariots. Where was his certainty of victory? It was in his chariots. What happened? What did he abandon first? <laughs> his chariots. He got down and he fled Like, God beats chariots. There's one more detail that's really easy to read right over. At first, when I was looking at the the bulletin this week, and I'm thinking, man, this is a lot of words to put on the page and to read, and what can I cut out, or what do I not need in this passage that we can just sort of skip over? And I thought, oh, this stuff about Heber the Kenite, we can... We can dispense with that. Who cares about Heber the Kenite? Why is that in there? Verse 11. But verse 11 actually is really important. This, this, let me just, let me just read this. Again, not a passage that's crocheted on pillows, but it's important. Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in, I'm not saying that word again, which is near Kedesh. Like, what is a Kenite, and why do we care about Heber? Why is this dull bit of, of in, hard to understand information just inserted right here in the middle of the text? 
just right in the middle of, of this otherwise pretty interesting story. Because this is the way God is going to defeat his enemies. The Kenites all lived in the far south of Judah. And this story takes place in the north, near the Sea of Galilee. And Heber wasn't supposed to be there. That's why it's a big deal that he separated from the other Kenites and he pitched his tent so far away. And there also there was this treaty that was struck between Jabin, the king of Canaan, and Heber, the Kenite, and, and Sisera. As he abandoned his chariot and got down, he fled to the place that he thought was the safest and closest, which was the tents of Heber, the Kenite. And it's by the hand of Jael, the wife of Heber, that Sisera meets his doom and victory is secured. Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. Like, (laughs) why is that last uh, word in there? So he died, but... God is a warrior. (laughs) He is a warrior redeemer. And it is God who is doing the fighting. It is God who is orchestrating the events. He is God who is is, uh, wielding the people who wield the hammers. It is God who who is causing Heber the Kenite and his whole ensemble to move up north so that he's in the right place at the right time for Sisera to, to go in and be nailed to the ground. God even uses nature. And we'll look at this next week as we look at chapter 5, which is a different way of telling the same story. But in chapter 5, verse 21, it seems like there's a a rainstorm and a flash flood that causes the river to, to overflow and bog down the chariot wheels. He uses human instruments. Deborah is the judge in this story, and Jael is the hammer-swinging one who finishes the story, and Deborah, in a way, uh, uses Barak in the same way that Jael, Jael uses the hammer and tent peg. He uses human instruments. The Lord's fingerprints are all over this, and it is the Lord that gives the victory It is the Lord that secures redemption for his people. So God supplies the faith, he supplies the victory, and he receives the glory. Verse 23, on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. Look, what, what's never in question as we started off? Even as we are, are reading these, through these judges and these stories and we come to those first verses as we get to the next judge and again the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Like you, you almost don't need to read the rest of it to know how it ends up. How does it end up with the people being redeemed? There's no question about that. God is going to do it, that God was going to save his people and never in question. And God doesn't doesn't need Barak exercising his faith to accomplish his will. In fact, it's the opposite. The certainty of God's determination to save his people 
that gives Barak the faith to take the field. Every step of the way, Barak needed Deborah to remind him and to encourage him, does not the Lord go out before you? The Lord has gone before us to save. What do we, how do we close almost every service at GCC? The Lord your God is in your midst and he is mighty to save. The Lord has provided salvation for his people before we ever even knew that we needed it. Jesus sweat drops of blood in the garden in 30 AD so that we in 2022 can find rescue from the oppression of sin. The Lord doesn't wait. He doesn't wait to fight for you. He doesn't wait to fight for his people. Look, as we gather for worship each week, the Holy Spirit doesn't wait for us to get the songs right or the prayers right or the sermon right before he starts moving and acting among us. He's always doing that. He's been doing that. We're dependent upon his working beforehand all the time in us, whether we want him to or know that we need him to. We need his activity. We need his gracious moving towards us, abiding with us, never leaving us, never stopping trying to, never stopping saving us and reforming us and conforming us into the image of his son that, that when we are called to worship each Sunday during this part of our liturgy, what do you think we're doing? Are we moving, is he moving into our presence or are we moving into his? We're moving into his presence. We are, we are moving into his throne room as we gather for worship, not the other way around. And think about this, our corporate worship, the glory that we give to our redeemer warrior God, our corporate worship is a weak mirror of what's already happening in the presence of God in heaven. It's a weak mirror, a weak rehearsal of what, what has been going on from eternity past without interruption. <laughs> and what will be going on into eternity future without interruption. And those angelic beings in God's presence right now who are the ones worshiping our glorious savior, warrior, God, are themselves so glorious and so beautiful and so amazing that every time a human being sees one of them, 
we're tempted to worship them. <laughs> like, that's what we're doing. That's what we're joining as we gather for corporate worship. That's what we're adding our voices to. This glorious, amazing, unspeakable recounting of the wonderful acts of God to redeem and to take what is broken and to take we who are hurting, to take we who don't see the ends of all things and make us new. As his people, we come into this glorious activity remembering, recounting, pleading for, crying out for our need for redemption. And we have a God who delights to redeem. Like Deborah said to Barack, somebody's going to get the glory, but it's, it's not going to be you. And it's not J.L., but it's the God who saves his people. The gospel of Jesus Christ is glorious whether we acknowledge it in our worship or not. The Holy Spirit is on the move and not just in faraway places, but here, among God's people at Grace Community Church. And the success of this church hinges not on who's filling this pulpit, but on whether or not we as the people of God believe that God is at work and that God is moving to, to smash our idols, not the idols of the secular culture, but my idols, those things in which I place my ultimate hope that are misplaced, to root out sin, to, to make us more like Jesus and to use us in the here and now to join our lives and our voices to that heavenly worship that has been going on. And every time we come to this table, which in our church is every week, every time we come to the Lord's table and we celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming something. This is not just a, a passive thing that we do, but we are actively proclaiming by our coming to this table the glory of the salvation made real by the death of Christ Jesus our Lord, which is ours to receive freely by grace alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come once again to this table that you have set with us, set before us with your broken body and shed blood, remind us of our need, remind us of, of, of the depth of it, the, the, the seriousness of it, remind us of the, the, the hopelessness of our need apart from our hope in Christ Jesus. 
and what he has done in living the life that we can never live and dying the death that we should have died. Lord, as we come to this table this morning, impress on us again the gospel, the good news. Proclaim to us through this bread and this wine the the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and help us to glorify you as we we come before you this morning uh, in this sacrament. We pray in Jesus' name.